Our Old Testament reading this morning is from Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God's goodness is available for us just for moments like this, just for times like this. In fact, when everything is going just fine, often we do not reach out to rely on God's grace and peace and his presence. We take those things for granted. And so in God's providence, um, he knows how to get our attention, not to say that this is from God or anything like that. This is a result of a fallen world. But God's um, power and peace and presence is especially available to us. So as we sort of move through the next couple of weeks with uncertainty, place your confidence and trust in the Lord and cry out to him because God is there for us. Romans 3, verses 9 through 20. This is the word of the Lord. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Father God, now we pray for the illumination of the Spirit and that you would electrify this word, O God, that our hearts may be set aflame with the truth that you have given us here. And Lord, we may be encouraged, convinced, and convicted by it, and leave this place transformed and renewed differently than the way we came in. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, there's not much that history has bestowed on us with respect uh, to the writings of the fourth century Celtic monk theologian Pelagius. Theologians of the time have sort of distilled to us secondhand his writings, and some of those things have endured through the centuries. Now, Pelagius held that because everything created by God was good, he struggled to see how human beings could have been made fallen creatures. So he was struggling to reconcile God's good world and the sinfulness of human beings, the idea of sort of original sin. The view that mankind can avoid sinning and that humans can freely choose to obey God's commands stands at the core of Pelagian teaching. In short, 
Pelagius did not believe in the doctrine of original sin. For him, human beings were sort of born with a blank slate and had the ability, if they so choose, to remain sinless. Pelagius stressed autonomy and freedom of the will. And for him, grace consisted of three things, free will, the law of Moses, and the teachings of Jesus. In other words, God's grace was essentially these external things. Our free will, the law of Moses, and teaching of Jesus. Those were like grace. Those were like helpings, you know, helps from God to enable us to sort of live the Christian life. With these things, a person would be able to perceive sort of the moral course of action that he should take in his life or she should take and follow it. Prayer and fasting and asceticism, you know, sort of pushing away, touch not, taste not, handle not. Those things supported the will for us to do God's will and to do good. But another theologian of the time, right around the time of Pelagius in the fourth century, someone who was a uh, a friend of Pelagius who respected his sharp intellect but disagreed with this idea that Pelagius was writing about. His name was Augustine. And Augustine accused Pelagius of thinking of God's grace as consisting only of external help. Now, Pelagius defended himself by saying, we may always stand in need of God's help, but we abhor the blasphemy of those who say that God would command us to do things that we are unable to do. In other words, why would God command us to do things that we cannot do or we cannot perform? That seems reasonable on the surface, doesn't it? But Augustine pushed back and said that grace was an essential enabling necessity. In other words, without grace, man could not keep the commands of God, nor could man do God's will without grace. Man needed not only the strength, but the inner will to obey God. Augustine believed that because man cannot stop sinning, he needs supernatural enabling by God's grace. Because his very nature, Augustine believed, is corrupted by sin. The very nature, our very nature. That's a, that's a very strong statement, that the human nature, who we are deep down inside, is corrupted by sin. And Augustine coined the famous Latin phrase, non possum non peccare, which is, I cannot not sin. That was what Augustine said, that we cannot not sin. If, as Pelagius taught, human beings were not injured by the fall, and we inherit no original sin, then we only need to sort of repent for the occasional times we slip up and sort of hit the reset button, and we're back to the clean slate again. I watched a documentary this week in, in spite of, you know, in, you know, in lieu of, in light of, everything that's going on with the coronavirus, and it was called uh, Hidden Enemy. It was, if you have Amazon Prime, it's a good documentary. You should watch it, it's from 2014, and it's about viruses. And they talked about the difference between an epidemic, a pandemic, and then something that is endemic. And an epidemic is a disease that 
spreads quickly and affects many people at the same time in a particular region. A pandemic, of course, is something that we're seeing right now, which is a virus or a disease that spreads rapidly across the globe and touches and affects everybody. But one of the things that the narrator said is the last thing we want is for a, a disease or a virus to become endemic. And when something is endemic, it means it's part of the human nature, some type of illness or disease that all people have. Well, sin, what Paul is saying, we're about to get into in a second here, sin is endemic. It is part of our human fallen condition. And because of that, all people, as we'll see in a second here from Paul's verses, stand condemned before the divine bar of judgment. Mankind's bondage to sin, then, is universal. We are, therefore, incapable of not sinning. And so the first thing I want us to look at is human inability. Look at what Paul says in verse 9 up on the screen here. Both Jews and Greeks are under sin, as it is written. He's quoting Psalm 14. None is righteous. No, not one. Actually, he's quoting quite a few Old Testament verses here. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have sinned, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, no, not even one. Now look at that again. None, not one, no one, no one, not even one. He means that no human being on his own seeks God of his own will or volition in a way that can merit salvation. And it's not that we don't do good things. We are capable, believer or non-believer, of doing many good things. You know, we see people who are the CEOs of big corporations like Apple and Google and many of, many of them which are atheists, they're able to do, have, you know, sort of charitable causes and do things on the surface that look good. But what Paul is sort of getting at is the idea that none of us truly do good things from a pure and godly motive in any way that can make God want to save us, sort of earn our salvation, right? On the television series The Good Place, Three people have died and gone to heaven, and over time it's revealed that they're really in the bad place. And one of the three characters knows that they didn't belong in the good place anyway. But the other two, one is a sort of uh, charitable philanthropist, and the other is a scientist, and it takes them a while to realize, sort of discover why they're in the bad place because they thought for certain they deserved to be in the good place. And what happens is, over time it's revealed, and it's a comedy, so it's funny, but there's a lot of really sort of good moral, you know, moral lessons in the show. Over time they reveal that the good, even the good things they did, they did from wicked and selfish motives. And what Paul is saying is that is not that people don't do good things, but that the good things they do are stained by evil. Since they're not done ultimately for God's glory and they don't flow out of a, a heart posture of faith. To put it another way, there is not a single person who, 
apart from God's justifying grace, can stand as right before God. Human beings then are totally unable to do anything of themselves to truly please God. Now theologians call this the doctrine of total depravity, total inability, or human inability. And driving this point home, look at what Paul says in the next few verses. Verse 13, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Certainly doesn't seem like Paul's view of human beings is that deep down we're all good. In fact, for him, it's just the opposite. Deep down, we're not all good. The doctrine of human inability doesn't say that human beings, as I said a moment ago, are as bad as they could be. I mean, Adolf Hitler, there were people he loved and cared for and took care of and was probably very gentle and kind with. He was not as bad as he could have been, as unfathomable as that might seem to us. But the idea is not that every one of us are totally depraved, but that sin has touched every part of us, our minds, the way we think, our emotions, even our bodies. R.C. Sproul says, total depravity means that the fall was so serious that it affects the whole person. The fallenness that captures and grips our human nature affects our minds and our thinking. We have the capacity to think, but the Bible says the mind has become darkened and weakened. We talked about that a few weeks ago at the end of Romans chapter one where it says that God gave those moral rebels, people who did not believe or choose to retain the knowledge of God in their mind, he gave them over to a debased mind, right? And not to be trite or simplistic, there are many scientific reasons why this virus is, exists right now, right? It is a result of sort of human progress and at the same time globalization and the spread of bacteria and all these different things. But on, in a very real sense, ultimately it's the result of sin. Coronavirus is the result of sin in our world because sin ruptured the way God wanted this world to be and ever since then, not just human beings, but all creation is groaning as it waits for the redemption and revelation of the sons of God. That's what it says later on in Romans 8. We'll get there. Right now we're in Romans 3. But the all of creation, which means, you know, our biome, the biological world we live in, is groaning for redemption because it is not functioning the way it's supposed to be functioning on, an, on account of human sin, original sin, and the fall. In other words, sin reaches and affects every area of our being as human beings. It affects the core of our being. We might say human beings are rotten to the core. That, that sounds kind of rough. But we could say that. Human beings are rotten to the core. But this raises another problem by saying that. Because it is true that to our core, sin has affected us, and at the same time, 
how can we say that all human beings, if they're made in God's image, are at the same time rotten to the core? Sounds like a dichotomy. I mean, you can't, how can you say one without the other? This is actually Pelagius's struggle. So I give Pelagius sort of a pass. I do not think he was a heretic who's going to hell, all right? I think Pelagius was a guy who was like wrestling with theological ideas and did not have the benefit like we do in the 21st century of 21 centuries of theological reflection where he could flip through books and read. I think he was wrestling early in the church's history with these two issues. How can we be rotten and wicked internally and at the same time made in God's image? Some people have taken Paul's words All have turned aside, together they have become worthless, which is in the passage we just read, to teach a kind of, well, a kind of worm theology. That human beings are really like no better than a worm, right? So like we don't want the pendulum swing over here where it says that human beings are basically good, but also if the pendulum is way over here where we say human beings are all rotten, what we're left with sometimes is kind of like a worm theology that there is nothing good about human beings at all. Are we fearfully and wonderfully made, or are we rotten and wicked? Well, the theologian Francis Schaeffer, who died about 30 years ago, affirmed the doctrine of total depravity, but he also held to a very high theology of the image of God in human beings. He said that human beings are both beautiful and broken at the same time. We're wicked and unprofitable in any spiritual sense, in our natural and unredeemed state, but at the same time, we are glorious as the pinnacle of all of God's creatures. So we, these two things can exist side by side. Human beings can be of Im- immense, immeasurable value as being made in the image of God, the pinnacle of God's creation, and at the same time, wicked and depraved. Francis Schaeffer took these two things that seem, this, this sort of tautology, these two things that seem to be intention, and he would say, human beings are glorious ruins. Once made for a grand purpose, but fallen into disrepair on account of sin. I like that. You know, I... I I, I love watching, uh, you know, and looking at places in the world of these, you know, amazing, you know, buildings of architecture that have sort of like been lost to history, you know, like the, the Cambodian jungle, like there's vines growing over these temples, right? And at once this was probably like the hub of religious life, you know, in that area. At one time it was beautiful and glorious, but now it's sort of dirty and filthy and and nature has sort of reclaimed that area. I mean, that's kind of what we are, right? We're like these little temples once created for this divine purpose that have fallen into disrepair because of sin. It's a good mental image. Fallen into disrepair because of sin. Now, the very fact that human beings, when they sin, the very fact that God gets angry at human beings when they sin is because God loves humanity. And we ought not to sort of create another false dichotomy and say, if God loves us, he cannot be wrathful towards us because of sin. Actually, I think it's the very reason that God loves us that he's wrathful and angry at sin. Because he loves us. Because when we sin, 
we're not functioning in a way that God has created us for. That is why the wrath of God exists. It has nothing to do with whether God loves us or not. Actually, it's because God loves us, just like your children, for those of you who have children or were once a child, which is everyone here, when your kids do things you don't want them to do and you know are bad for them, you become angry if they keep doing it over and over again and your anger is a result of your love for them because if you didn't love them, you would be indifferent. You would let your kids run out into the street and get hit by traffic or play with knives or put a fork in the electrical socket. I mean, that would be indifference, right? And so God's wrath towards sin is because he loves human beings, is because of his great love. God is not just a passive grandpa kissing the children as they run off the porch out into the field to play no matter what they do, sort of never angry, never disapproving, never wrathful, never punishing, almost indifferent. But God is anything but indifferent toward us. And his electing love that does save some people is to salvage the image of God in the world. So what is it that God sees in human beings despite their wickedness and rottenness to the core that causes him to save people? Well, God sees himself in us. He sees his image in us. It's his glory in us, his image bearers, that is worth saving. Not because we've done anything worth saving, but because human beings inherently have the image of God in us, marred by the fall to be sure, but God sees in us himself, and that is worth salvaging. Now what does the Jew who has the law say to the doctrine of human depravity or the idea of the universal effects of the fall and original sin? How might he evade the dragnet of Paul's argument? And if you've been here for the past few weeks and couple of months, we have been arguing, we have been, we have been explaining Paul's argument, arguing between the Jews and the Gentiles in the church in Rome, especially the Jews who felt that they had some privileged place in the world because they had the law and they had circumcision, and they didn't think the judgment of God was going to come on them because, well, they were the people of God. And whether they obeyed the law, disobeyed the law, it didn't really matter because they were the people of God. They were Israel. They were the Jews. And Paul is specifically trying to make the case that the gospel is necessary because all human beings need salvation. And this is what he says. This is his response, right? They might have said, yes, Paul, all human beings are in sin. That's true, but we have the secret weapon. We have the sin sanitizer. I'm just pulling these illustrations out left and right. Right? We've, got, we've got the sanitation here, you know, to keep us clean, Paul. We've got the law, and we'll keep the law. We keep the law, and by the law, we shall be saved. And Paul, this is his response. He talks about the law's limits, Romans 3.19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And so before, in the next verse, which we'll, we'll get to, in verse 21 and onward, that famous passage, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, what Paul does before he tells us how we can be justified 
is he tells us how we cannot be justified. It's sort of the negative before the positive. Paul is saying here, here's how you cannot be justified, and he's speaking to the concept of Jews who think, by the first century, they think that the law will justify them. I talked a little bit last week about, for us as Christians who have the Bible, and ostensibly we all love our Bible, but mere possession of the Bible does not make you holy before God. Mere possession of the Word of God does not mean you're acceptable in God's sight. Even mere knowledge of the Word of God does not necessarily set you apart from anyone else. As if our sins are acceptable, the culture's sins are not. And one of the things we have to be careful as Christians not to do is prop up everyone else's sins as worse than our own and believe that our sins, which we judge by a much less strict standard than we judge other people, God is going to sort of wink at and, and ignore just because we think either we're Christians or we have the Bible or we're in possession of the word of God. God cares about the heart. We talked about that last week. There are limits to the law, is what Paul is saying. Now, in the 21st century, there's not a whole lot of people who are going around saying, well, the law of Moses will square me up with God. I mean, if you're a Christian, you know about the law of Moses, and, and if you've been in church for any amount of time, you've heard this phrase over and over and over again, but most people in the world are not thinking the law of Moses will set me right with God, but they do have some other standard. Maybe it's the Quran. Maybe it's karma, some unrevealed mystical rule of behavior. Maybe whatever it is, and this is really what Paul is getting at. He's not just aiming at the law. He's aiming at any source of confidence other than, him, other than God. This is what Paul is targeting, right? And we've heard people say, I'm a good person, I do good things, I treat others right, I give to the poor, I'm kind and I'm tolerant, whatever rule, whatever, whatever uh, sort of mark or measuring bar they're using to justify themselves, whether it's the law of Moses or any law, Paul is saying that's not enough. And what's instructive for us is that the first century context of the Jews trying to earn salvation through obedience to the law is a principle that has universal application. Whether it be the law of Moses or anything else, nothing, this is the principle, okay? Nothing a person does, whatever the object of obedience is, or the motivation of that obedience, can bring him or her into favor with God. Nothing. And this, this is the heart of Paul's contention in this section of Romans that no one is capable of doing anything to gain acceptance with God. Now this might leave you utterly hopeless if I just said goodbye, have a good day, have a good week, right? Fortunately, there are 13 more chapters of Romans which answers that seeming hopelessness. But as we said before, before we get to the good news of the gospel, you have to sort of explain the bad news. Before you talk about why Jesus is an answer, you first have to say, what's the question? And this is the question. What do we do about our inability, our human inability to please God, because even the good things seemingly that we do do not come from God honoring 
impure motives. Whatever system of performance you're relying on this morning, you need to know that it'll never give you the security you want. Your confidence before God and even your self-worth can never rest on how good you are, how good you are at your job, how good of a provider you are, how good of a father or mother you are, how good of a friend you are, how smart you are, your image, how good you are with money, how well-liked you are, how physically fit you are, or how moral you are. Because all those things rest not with God, but they rest with you. And invariably, inevitably, you will fail. You will fall. And when you fail, if your identity is not in Christ, then that thin veneer of security is peeled away. When a spouse walks out, the one left behind feels no one loves me anymore. When a person is let go by an employer, that person may say, no one values me anymore. When a sin is revealed that causes you shame, you may think, no one respects me anymore. And when you fail to measure up to the person you thought you were, and life comes crashing down, all around you, you'll wonder, do I matter anymore? And in Christ, the answer is always yes. You matter even when things fall apart. Let's pray. Father God, now we thank you for the confidence which you promise us in your word, which we struggle to grab a hold of. We struggle to grab a hold of the promise that in Christ we are loved, in Christ we are accepted, and in Christ we matter no matter what happens in our lives. Help, uh, help us, oh God, that our confidence is not in our accomplishments, our status, how good we are at any aspect of our lives, because we know, oh God, that those things can be easily stripped away. We do not know, oh God, what is in store for us in the coming weeks, but we have hope, we have confidence that your love will carry us through. But no matter what happens, oh God, we pray that you would cause our confidence to remain in Christ and our identity to remain in your Son who died for us and gave himself for us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.